to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Welcome to this week's episode released on the 5th of April, so just one week before indoor hospitality reopens in England. Uh, I have to say I'm confused at the moment as to whether that is the same in Scotland and Wales, but let's certainly say that vaccines across the country appear to be working well and we are a hell of a lot closer to opening than we were to closing. I hope you are all hanging on in there, whether desperate to open your own venue or get back to work or simply go out and enjoy some great great British hospitality. My team and I are certainly working hard trying to fathom how on earth do you run a restaurant outside with the quirks of the British Spring. It's certainly going to be a challenge. I just hope the public have invested in some thermals and a sense of humour. Certainly though, I'm bloody excited to open the doors in some way. I'll keep you posted how that goes. Now this week's guest will provide a great example of the variety and enjoyment in a life spent trying to understand and provide better food. Phil Horton has had a great food adventure over many decades and he's just written a book, Food for Thought, that brings together this journey combined with recipes and producers he's met along the way. Phil's current business is the better food stores and cafes dotted around Bristol. That combination of combining the hospitality of a cafe, drawing people into the building, and then hopefully inspiring them to leave with some exceptionally ethical and delicious food and drink is the evolution of a lifetime's learning for Phil and now his wider team. Despite Phil's desire for all organic, he is pragmatic enough, particularly after previous insolvencies, to recognize you do also have to sell what the customer is willing to buy. Perhaps rather than seeking ethical perfection, we must take people on a journey in smaller steps. An upgrade to free range may sometimes be more palatable than fully organic for some products. Now, Phil has traveled the country finding the best suppliers, have set up and invested in community farms, has lived in a practical commune in Scotland learning how to live off the land. He set up and closed a veg box delivery business, has found the takings from his business tucked away in the bottom of the freezer, and has defended the ethics to sell meat in a considered and informed way. In essence, through a lifetime of learning and business, Phil no longer has to think about the provision of food and farming in hospitality in the UK. He knows how it works. He can see the challenges, but has some great informed perspectives on what and how we can be better. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. And as always, if you do, please can you leave a review on your podcast player of choice. It feels like a fair ask, so I hope you don't mind me mentioning it again. I take a day out to research, record, edit and upload the show. And in return, you Google how to leave a review. 
On Apple Podcasts, it's super easy. On other devices, it can be a smidgen more of a challenge, but it's generally possible. Failing that, don't forget on the website, you can also become a patron of the show or make a donation by hitting the donate button. Every penny you spend goes into supporting the tech and time to find more great guests to explore the amazing humans behind the hospitality, food and drink world. That's humansofhospitality.co.uk. Okay, thank you for your support. And now let's get over and meet Phil. Cheers. Phil Horton, founder of Better Food and author of the book Food for Thought. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. And, and you've been on this amazing uh, food adventure for pretty much your whole life, Phil. It's, it's hard to imagine anyone who could have you know, more knowledge from a lifetime's work in better food and sort of better soil health. So really excited to chat to you today. But uh, before we get going, can you just explain where in the world are you, please, Phil? Hi, morning, Mark. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm uh, in the Chew Valley, uh, which is just south of Bristol City, uh, where I live. And I work from home quite a lot. And then I go into the shops and stuff in, in Bristol. Nice. Have you? Is this a, a, a response to COVID, or have you worked from home for quite some time? I, I've always worked. Well, not always actually, but but since I've been less at the coal face, as it were, um, more working on development, etc. Then I've I've had more opportunity to be at home, and it it works quite well for me because I like to I like variety, and I can sit at the desk for a few hours, and then I can go into the garden and dig some carrots or whatever, you know, or do a bit of potting or something. I I like to split my day up a little bit. Perfect. I imagine you've got a pretty decent uh, garden growing at home, have you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Wouldn't be without it. Mind you, I used to when 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 I was growing vegetables commercially, as it were, um, I didn't because it was a bit cold to Newcastle. yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Well, look, we'll come into the reasons why. So, so before, you know, we're going to dive into into a whole heap of issues because of that knowledge you've got, and we'll dive into a bit of your background, which will give sort of, uh, yeah, the background info, I suppose, as to why you're so knowledgeable. But before we go there, let's just sort of, you know, start at the end before we go back to the beginning. You've got uh, three better food stores at the moment in Bristol. For people that don't know you and they don't know the stores, can you just explain a little bit about them? You know, why are they so unique and what do you do? So, yeah, we've got three stores which are, are, are based on the principle of uh, we want as much organic food in there as we possibly can. So we're not precious about it, but it's it's a place where you can go to, to go to buy pretty much all your groceries and uh, well-being. So we've got health and beauty and, and toiletries and gifts and all that as well. But uh, the foundation of it is around fresh, good ingredients that are organically produced and uh, they're in neighbourhood areas of Bristol, uh, which is where we find that uh, there is the most demand for that sort of thing. And it also helps us to build a sense of community. So they very much are stores based at the heart, in the heart of communities and providing a real service. And we, we kind of take that view of service and hospitality very seriously. Uh, we are there to serve. We are there to care and to meet people's needs. Um, yeah, so I think that kind of encompasses more or less what we do. Yeah, and you, and you've also got a cafe element to it. Is that right? And am, am yeah. I right in saying that sort of become more important with your most recent one? You know, compared to the early days. Yeah, no, absolutely. When when we opened our big store in St Werburgh's back in two thousand and two, uh, it was actually the the beginning was quite tough getting it really going and getting accepted. 
Um, some people saw it as, oh, it's that organic shop and I can't afford it. And interestingly, we decided to put a cafe in about four years after we arrived. And when we did, people came in for the cafe. And whilst they were in, oh, I'll just go and get some milk or I'll just go and get some butter. Oh, that's convenient. And they started to realize that actually it's not always that expensive. And actually also, I really like this place and I, I like the feeling that I get when I buy food here. And I love the food that I eat when I get home. And so it really helped to bridge that gap. And so from there on, we decided that we wanted places of hospitality to sit and eat as well as shop to be a part of all our um, shops, if, if if it was at all possible, if the size of the shop allowed for it. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I think you're right. I think people can feel almost intimidated by a, you know, a shop, or particularly one that's a bit unusual and that they think they might, you know, they might not be uh, the right demographic, I guess, price-wise, but people are so comfortable just to walk in somewhere and order a coffee. So I can see how that would uh, would lead in. Um, I always think retail, I, I think hospitality is a sort of insanely uh, complicated and tight margin business. And I've been doing it for sort of 16 or 17 years and a very little hair left as a result of it. But I always think retail also looks incredibly tight margin, incredibly tough. You do both. So uh, a you must be bonkers, but but I've got to ask which is which is the harder, cafe or retail? Oh, catering is 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 the harder actually because we commit to using uh, pretty much a hundred percent. We're on about ninety five percent organic in our cafe offerings, and that is great, and it's what we want to do. But it comes at a price tag, as as you know, um, and yet hospitality doesn't say. Uh, yeah, we're really happy to pay 25% more because it's organic. So we have to pretty much go like for like with the rest of the industry, uh, you know, comparable. Um, and um, that makes it tough, mar- tougher margin than, than most catering outfits. And as you know, margin, margin, margin is is so, yeah, it's it's pretty critical. Yeah. Um, it's annoying isn't it you can do so much cool stuff if you could just forget about it <laughs> but unfortunately yeah. it's we love uh, it as well you know we're really committed to it and we love it and, and our customers love it and uh it, it, in the round we make it work um and you know we we we, we make sure we have a break-even target on our catering outfits and uh, they just about do that so that's that it, they they wash their face as it were okay that's interesting, and and I I want to come in a little bit later to um, sort of organic supply in restaurant world because I think it's challenging. So super impressive that you've got to ninety five percent, but unfortunately the question for me that sort of jumps out: what's the five percent that's too difficult? Then what's the sort of thing that that you can't do organic? Well, there's just a number of items in in uh, in grocery that um, either are unobtainable organic. So let's think of a, a range that's not very well developed in organic. So um, some of the organic cakes and biscuits range, they're a bit limited. Um, uh, what else? Some of the herbs and spices, some of the quality of some of the non-organic herbs and spices are so much better than the, the organic ones that we can get. That's not to say we don't do a lot of really good organic ones, but there are certain elements where it's a bit more difficult. Um Vegan is really difficult to provide the the range that we would like organic. So we also buy in some non-organic. And then meat and eggs, we choose to do uh, free-range poultry and free-range eggs. Um, At the moment, we do. We're having having conversations about wanting to push it out, and it's quite interesting because it's it's a dialogue around accessibility and 
um, you know, trying to welcome as many people as possible, but without compromising our fundamentals. And um, so we do stock free range eggs and we do stock free range chickens, but we're having good, strong conversations about the future of that at the moment. That's interesting. Is, is, that, a, is that a price decision? Or? It's it's a price decision, yeah. I mean, free-range eggs and free-range chickens are significantly cheaper than uh, organic eggs and organic uh, poultry because yeah. the nature of it, the standards, the welfare elements of it um, require so much more. You know, like you just take free-range and organic free-range, that Soil Association organic free-range, you can't clip their beaks uh, your flock numbers have to be significantly lower. The range that they have has to be significantly higher um, in comparison with standard um, free range. Um, so there, there, are, there are a lot of on costs before you actually get to the price of the wheat or the barley or the oats or whatever that you're having to feed organically as well. Mm, okay. I have this conversation with my chef sometimes with, with, with free range as well, but uh, he, he, they find the more free range, the more sort of, uh, I suppose, you know, closer to organic or wilder the bird gets. And, and I, I've not necessarily proved this, but this is their theory, is that they find that the uh, the meat toughens. And actually they think whether it's because of the sort of muscular use that the birds get, if they've got you know more space and stuff like that. But my chefs will argue till they're blue in the face that it's harder for them to get a really tender uh, organic chicken than it is to get a free range one. I don't know, have you have you heard of that before? I've, I've not actually. I mean, I can I can imagine what you know. Maybe it is a muscular thing and a, and a feed thing um, to a degree. So it, it's possible. I mean, they have a they they tend to have a lower water content. So when you roast a, uh, a an ordinary chicken alongside a, an organic chicken, and you you do them in exactly the same conditions, the weight loss due to water will be less in an organic chicken. So maybe something to do with muscle density and stuff makes a difference um, okay well they they always look at me you know with a great deal of uh, earnest kind of looks when they tell me and i give them that skeptical kind of because uh, you know, i because for me you know it's all about telling the best story that we can although you know you're yeah, right. but also the other thing mark is that um chickens traditionally used to i was talking about this i've just done a little video about um about eggs the chicken and the egg actually but you know it's not that many generations ago where we had dual purpose birds um, that laid enough eggs to keep us happy and were also quite good. The males were pretty good for, for meat. Um, but they would be grown for uh, longer, so they weren't pushed really hard, um, which inevitably meant that, that they were probably a bit tougher. But then what we would always traditionally have done is we would have hung them, a bit like you would hang games. So you, you, you don't actually, uh, you would pluck them, but you would not eviscerate them. You would leave them hanging for four or five days and then uh, eviscerate them. And that tenderizes the meat and also it also brings up the flavors. But there is no commercial gain for people. They, they, they lose weight and they lose time. So it costs. So nobody does it. Mm, okay. That's probably a good little segue then. So, so with all of this uh, learning that you've done and the, the reasons that we'll come to in a minute, you've also just written a book. Uh, it's sat here on my desk in front of me. I've been enjoying that over the last few days. So Food for Thought. Uh, we'll, we'll come into the details of it shortly, but was there a trigger? Why did now feel like the right time to get your sort of, I suppose it's, it's your journey and your adventure in food, but also you know quite a lot of thoughts around uh, you know how the food system was, how it should be, and maybe the direction we're going in. What was the trigger to... Uh, to write that now 
Uh, it was really um, the stage in my career where I was beginning to step back from the cold face, so I wasn't as stupidly busy as I had been most of my life um, and able to, to get a bit more of a perspective. And actually that the, the process of stepping back in itself was challenging um, and really fascinating. Um, but it, it, it provided me with a, a different view of things and a, and a bit more of time for reflection. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I might put some of this, you know, pen to paper on this. And I started writing one Monday morning as a sort of chronological life story with, uh, with philosophizing as I went along and, and invitations to explore different elements of the food system. Uh, and I was enjoying it so much, and I just sat down every Monday for about sort of between two and four hours for the for about I don't know nine months or something, and just it just flowed out. Um, the book as it is now is 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 very very different. It's it's not chronological, and it's got a lot more uh, color and depth to it in lots of ways. So it's 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 much more than just my story. Um, it's it's lots of people's stories and. Um, yeah, so I invited 12 uh, people to participate in it, um, people who I respect in, in food, in farming, in community, in business, uh, to add, add a, their dimension and their perspective so that it had a kind of generous, rounded feel to it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's unusual, actually, isn't it? Because you've, you've got lots of sort of, you know, recipe ideas in there but i suppose those those recipes have come about as a result of the stories you're telling so whether that's you know family's mum members i think it was your your mum's bread maybe was it and yeah. uh, or whether it's some of the suppliers you've worked with but it's uh, yeah it's a really it's a nice read because you feel like you're going on this adventure and this journey and then you slide in some you know activities to do with the kids and uh, i love that photo of you i think it's 1976 up in scotland the sort of black and white image yeah. of the extended family which we're going to come on to a little bit uh, in a minute but you even got hugh fernley whittingstall to write the intro is he uh, is he a friend of yours or yeah uh, he's I, I haven't known Hugh all that many years but I've met him a few times at uh food festival kind of things and he knew and worked with my bar brother Barney who's a chef so they worked together on food festivals so I got to know him a little bit and then uh he came to live in Bristol for a while and started using our white ladies road shop quite a lot and um he launched a restaurant just further up the road uh, in White Ladies Road, Bristol, and so I uh, saw him a bit in there, and we got talking. And um, I really respect what he's been doing around food and environment uh, with his TV and journalism. Um, and um, he was very generous and agreed to help with and, and put a full, put the forward together for the book. I was delighted. Excellent. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, funny enough, I was chatting to his PR team last week, so I'm hoping to get him on the podcast at some point as well. So if oh, yeah. you uh, if you bump into him, then um, you put in a good word. I will. Yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. So it'd be really easy to sort of think, okay, great. Yeah, you know, here's a guy. He's um he's got some shops. He sells a bit of organic food, lovely, and a few cafes. But I think the the, the journey that you've been on to get there is is fascinating. Um, but also who you supply with. So I want to touch on the community farm first of all. So one of your key partners and the suppliers for you. Uh, I think you also helped start it. Can you tell me a little bit about that project, why you're involved and, and how important are they, that sort of seed to, to not, not seed quite seed to plate, although I suppose it is to the cafe, but certainly seed to store kind of story. Yeah. So um, I got involved in growing again um, when we had 
just one store, the St. Werberg store, the flagship store, if you like. We took on a, a wall, Victorian wall garden. And um, when, when we outgrew that, um, we had the option to move to a site in the Chew Valley. And I said to the guy who was offering this really good land, um, look, I'm not sure that I want to do this anymore on my own because I keep on finding that I'm spending 10 hours growing and then another 10 hours trying to run the business sort of thing and there's no time left to sleep or anything. Um, but I am really quite interested in the idea of exploring doing it with other people. And uh, he, that's Luke Hazel, who owned the land, was also really interested in that idea. And so we we kind of got together and started hatching a, a vision. Um, and so at the time where we landed on that land, about 11 years ago now, um, 12 years, yeah, 12 years ago, um, I was growing, uh, retailing, wholesaling, and had a box scheme. So what we then did was we said, look, okay, the community farm, in order to be what we envisaged it to be, needs to have a trading base. Uh, and so we we gave them the uh, the, uh, the 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 business of wholesale and the business of the box scheme as a sort of founding trading activity within within it, um, which immediately gave it cash flow and the potential to make profits, which would then help for them to uh, do some really good work around um, helping people to understand what food and farming was all about and doing lots of volunteering and stuff like that. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't without its uh, challenges, particularly in the early days, but it's grown enormously and is now a mature and flourishing uh, community farm where uh, thousands of children and adults have been through uh, attending courses or volunteer days or tours around the farm, um, all sorts of things. It's a, and, and its relationship for better food has been one where we've bought produce from them uh, from day one. Um, so there's been a, a supportive long-term relationship. And it's just such a lovely story to be able to tell when you're selling some salad or some greens or whatever it is in the shops, you know, come from the community farm and then you give them a link and they find out the story and then they say, oh, I'm quite like interested in that. And they go off and they volunteer there and they discover more about uh, about the food chain and what it takes to grow good organic food. So yeah in in a way job done and it's and it's lovely to see it right yeah amazing I, I was reading about it and i thought this is great and and i often think with these things you know what what a wonderful idea they are and then i get excited and i think yeah you know what you were just saying is that you know life's so busy anyway kids and a dog and business and all this sort of thing and you realize just how much work it would be to create something like that and then you wonder why other people aren't doing it locally and so much of the really cool stuff that i hear about in food and drink tends to be very bristol centric you know you seem to have this really good sort of culture there how, how hard is it for places well, i suppose are you, are you aware of others you know dotted around the country or actually is it you know is it, is it really difficult is it the uniqueness of the fact that you almost you know you gave it to them at a point where it could be financially stable and then they've got access to to sell via you does that feel like a one-off or does that feel like you know people around the country could get inspired and set up something similar um i think people around the country could and and actually are um, inspired to do things. And certainly there's been lots of people who've come through the community farm who 
um, been there specifically to, to, to dig and to find out and to learn. And that's part of the remit of the farm is to, you know, openly and generously help others to, to do other similar things. Um, it's never financially easy, outfits like that. Um, as soon as you become a, a community outfit where you've got lots of interests and you're doing lots of social uh, social good, if you like, um, it, it you know, the, the bottom line is harder and harder to achieve uh, something positive and you're pretty much always dependent on grants to a degree as well. But I think... Um, I think one thing, Mark, is that we're at a point now where there's such an awakening uh, around the world and that the young people are really starting to be more courageous about doing things because there's so much at stake. And, you know, whether it's a community farm or uh, a community cafe or, um, you know, all sorts of elements that are challenging the status quo uh, about how we do business and challenging uh, capitalism even, sort of fairly fundamentally saying that the system's got to change. And the food system, as we know well, has really got to change. It's so fundamentally uh, broken. And uh, the, the young people are, are really, to me, are really inspiring because they're getting out there and they're making so many new things happen and they're, they're, they're expanding at a rate. I was at a conference, organic, uh, Ox, sorry, not organic, Oxford Real Farming Conference, um, which went online because of COVID and went international. And it had five and a half thousand delegates over a seven day period. Um, and it was so inspiring to hear of all these projects all over the world of what people are up to 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 make a difference and to, to kind of reset the dial on uh, what we've what we've grown accustomed to and how much it needs to change. Mm. I, I, I was interviewed um, Guy Singh Watson, who I presume you know yeah. from Riverford, and uh, I was asking him sort of his levels of of optimism or pessimism, I suppose, on the, on the direction and the trajectory, because, you know, in some of his videos, he, you know, he talks about, I can't remember how many it is, but, you know, maybe there's only 30 cycles in the soil left. So some of it can be, can be very depressing, but, but there also does feel like there is maybe finally this, this groundswell, I suppose. You talk about this sort of this need to shift all farming from an industrial to a human scale. What do you mean by that? Um, I, I mean that the, the food system is so broken and got into the hands of so few people um, in terms of the financial um, uh, the financial powerhouse behind it all, whether it's retail or growing um, seed companies, uh, chemical companies, etc., etc. It's it's really so desperately broken and not operating one iota in the interests of humanity, what it is to be human, uh, that I feel like we need a real uh, check uh, to say, why Why do we bother existing? Uh, why do we bother producing food? Well, it's to feed and nourish a being. And uh, the more that we can start to reconnect with that, um, the more chance I think we have of not only solving the the, the 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 food system that's broken but also solving what i also think has been going alongside all of this is that we've become less and less human we've kind of in a way been 
on a program of dehumanizing humans and a part of the awakening that's going on i think at the moment is 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 about uh well that really hasn't worked and the more that we can get back to that and i think one of the the clearest routes is to be involved in our food system to be involved in growing and producing food um so returning to the land in the way that we haven't done for centuries um i think is fundamental to our our future well-being whether we ever will but if we can go in that trajectory i think which i think we you know some of us are um i think the more chance we've got of uh sorting out food sorting out climate and 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 being happier as humans on on planet earth and maybe not fighting quite so much maybe, yeah maybe agreed sizing but you know it's 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 a strong passionate feeling i have yeah yeah well you know i, I very much hope you're right I, I think i can't remember where i read this but you know there was, there was this concept of you know we we industrialized food because you know maybe post-war era we wanted to make sure that we could feed the planet growing population and you know if you sit down with a farmer and you say look you know we can't feed the world this way we can't feed the world organically you know we can't do this and, and actually you know the farmer's sort of response was look i'm not trying to feed the world i'm just trying to feed you know my my local village or local villages or, or my community yeah. do you think that's the answer do you think we need to get back to this sort of yeah more more localized rather than you know either nationalized or internationalized or is it is it some sort of compromise between that i think to a degree certainly for the foreseeable future it's going to be a compromise and maybe that's good a good thing um because we can always learn from from things going on further afield but i I think that the request to farmers has has got to change yes we're not asking you to feed the world we're asking you to feed uh feed the people around you um and you know if you start with that premise um you're inevitably going to need to uh, feed those people first and you'll have surplus that will then will go to feed other people and and likewise they'll have some surplus to feed you of, of items that you don't have so i think the the whole notion of and wonderful elements of trade will carry on uh, and the movement of goods will carry on but if if it if it can be founded more in the vein of um, I guess part of what we're doing is, you know, we, we, we as a company tend to make sure that we have uh, long-term relationships with our suppliers and build a respect and a rapport with them. And um, we don't just say, you know, we're hard-nosed and that's it. If you don't do this, then you can move on. Um, so I think it, yeah, I think, I think respect um, is at the heart of, good relationships and that the more local they are the easier it is to have those relationships and to respect the people who are producing the food Mm. and this is you know you've always felt this feel this isn't a sort of a a new thing is it so back in 1972 and my my son would be absolutely devastated if i did this but your mum for your 14th birthday bought you a subscription to the soil association i can't even get my kids to listen to the podcast that i did with uh, helen from the soil association let alone read a subscription what 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 motivated your mum to do that and and where did that you know how how come at such a young age you already had this interest i think for mum it was almost sort of living out uh, something that she hadn't fulfilled to the extent that she wanted to. So I think she was pretty passionate about uh, food, farming and soil health. And she introduced me to 
uh, a book by Newman Turner called um, Fertility Farming and then another one, um, Fertility Pastures or something like that. I can't remember now. But that was way, way, way back. Um, and so I think when she gave it to me, she she saw that I was helping in the garden and, and kind of intrigued by what was what was going on in, in nature. And I think she also saw that I was a bit kind of bereft and bewildered by life and wasn't quite sure what it was all about and a you know, typical teenager to a degree, but well, maybe not typical, I don't know. Um, and so when I got this present, I was kind of like, what? I'm 14. What do I want with that? Where's the comic? You know, where's the, where's the fun? Where's the club? You know, but um, I, I started reading and it, it just, yeah, I, it, it triggered something in, in me and um, I carried on reading and, and, and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. No. What a yeah. What what a cracking start. Because you know you didn't really you know school wise. I, I guess traditional education wasn't really your bag. Am I right in saying you ended up you know actually being asked to leave school? Do you, do you think the the world of food and drink and farming and hospitality? Do you think it provides that sort of alternative vocation and career for those you know who who perhaps are, are not perfectly suited to the very compliant and formulaic education structure that we seem to have? Absolutely. I mean, there's so uh, so many aspects to education that don't work for, in certain ways for certain people. And I think it's a much bigger uh, sector of society than, than we care to admit sometimes. Um, but I think, you know, if, if you think of three elements, head, heart and hands, hands are you know they're so tactile they're so fundamental to so many of us and yet in education they're so lacking in terms of recognizing their importance in somebody's life and and livelihood and career path um they're just not seen as being very important um that that you know it's just oh just laboring but it's so much more than just laboring um and of course you know head is uh, it's very useful, but it can also be uh, a hindrance. So uh, if, if you don't kind of m- mel- merge, I suppose, all three of those elements, head, heart and hands, you can, you can get a bit, bit of imbalance. But I think if, you can, if you're confused as a young person or you're just not really engaged with maths or English or history um, or the, the whole education system, very often coming back to something that's tactile like cutting vegetables it gives you something very purposeful and very easy in a way to to feel like you're 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 achieving something you know i've made a dish wow and i can eat it and i can share it with people and it's being appreciated and i think that appreciation is something that's at the heart of hospitality we love the fact that others are eating something that we've created and they're enjoying it yeah it's funny isn't it i think it's just hardwired into some people uh as a bit of a reflex and I, and I do love our sector and i would say you know food and hospitality combined for that in in the fact it's full of such amazing creative people i remember when we did a survey we you know i employed just over 100 people and uh i can't remember what the question was but you know we, we worked out that you know the vast majority of people either own crayons or a guitar you know it was basically they were into art or they were into musicians and it's just such an interesting such an eclectic uh, bunch of people who are really good fun to spend time with um talking of which one of the favorite bits of, of the book that i read was was back when you uh in 1974 moved up and i, I don't know if i pronounce this correctly but loth is it, it looked, yeah loth 
Yeah, Lothlorien. And, and that looked like a really special kind of place. Can you, do you mind just talking a little bit about, uh, yeah, yeah. about what went on there and your Lothlorien adventure? Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, Lothlorien, the, the word comes from the Tolkien books. Um, Tolkien, as, as we know, did, did a whole series of um, books and Lothlorien was a place was a, a place of refuge. So that's where it got its name from. Um but we were kind of uh, a mad, slightly dysfunctional, very large family in, in the 70s and more and more disillusioned with what was going on. All my parents were and my elder, eldest brothers were uh, in society and and my dad was a teacher and he was depressed and he was fed up. My mum wanted to get out of the rat race. And so we kind of did that back to the land um, sort of John Seymour thing. Um, but very quickly people started turning up from all family friends and friends of friends and we realized there was quite a number of people who were turning up who weren't in necessarily in a really great shape they were depressed or they were um suffering from drug addiction or uh other mental health things and they found that working and living with us in this community sort of setting um they found it to be uh very healing and so we became a trust and set ourselves up to be a place where you would come and uh, kind of recuperate from whatever world stresses you you'd been dealing with, um, but based around uh, part- full participation in in the work of the community, which was very much back to the land. I was running the farming, and my brother Mark was running the gardens, and Ben, my eldest brother, was um, heading up the building. Um, and we built a massive log house with 12 or so bedrooms. And, yeah, so it was a kind of an exploration into uh, communes, you know, sort of hippie communes, but so much more than that, you know, a really strong sense of community, um, quite a strong sense of Christianity, certainly for the first sort of five or eight years or so, Um, and um, a, a place of healing. Um, and certainly for me, it was a, I was a bit of a mess. Well, I was quite a lot of a mess, actually, as a late teenager. I was depressed and angry and confused. And um, being with nature uh, and farming gave me a sense of great sense of purpose and also a great sort of sanctuary of, of kind of bathing in, in the wonders of the hills and fields around um Lothlorien, which were Galloway in southwest Scotland. Yeah, yeah. amazing. It, it, looked, it looked really interesting. And, and, and what I loved as well is this sort of sense of, you know, sort of gratitude at the simple things, I suppose. There was this, this sort of little section where you were explaining, you know, just the complexity of running water because, you know, this was really basic yeah. when you first got there, wasn't it? It was just land, you know, next to a patch of woods. And, and then it was a case of, you know, getting the water in the bucket. And then it, you moved on to, you know, a, a hose in the ground and you hand pumped it and eventually a generator. And as you say, ultimately you built a house. Does that sort of knowledge... I suppose, stay with you, that sense of gratitude of the simple things. If you have to go to that much work and that many years simply for, you know, for the ability to turn on a tap, do you think that stays with you? I, I think I lost it for a long time, but I regained it about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, kind of, yeah, really remembering some of the simple things and how we take them for granted. And I mean, and we've all experienced that during COVID, you know, some of the things that we've experienced during COVID is like you, you really do appreciate um sitting across the table from somebody when you can't you know <laughs> that kind of thing but um i think that um 
observation around <clears throat> water supply, which was, you know, it was a journey from having to use buckets to using a hose pipe and then the hose pipe froze and then you bury it and so you've, you're protected from the frost and and then you put a, a, a generator in to pump the water and so it's, it's progress. Um, and not only do you appreciate what you've got, but also I think it it's a learning in when is enough and I think that's something that is a really big question for us in humanity. You know, when when is enough? Do we do we now need robots to take over? Um, what do you call them? CIs or uh, is it CIs? I'm not sure. No. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't. I don't want one though. The, the, robotic, <laughs> the robotic world. Yeah, AI. I think is it. Yeah, artificial intelligence. Yes. Yeah, sorry, AI. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, but the you know do we do we actually need that? Is that serving as humanity? Yes, of course we can go on developing and progressing, and we can go to Mars. Look, we've just we've just dumped something on Mars a few weeks back. Um, does that really? So the, there's the can do, and there's the human curiosity to explore, which should never be dampened. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of room for reflecting on: does it really serve us? Um, and what what you know going further and say what does actually serve us and often simplicity and an appreciation of of the basics in life like running water or electricity i mean it's a phenomenal thing that electricity that you know we're not having this conversation without it um it, it is extraordinary these sorts of things in in the world and telephones and these little mobiles and all this stuff is is absolutely mind-blowing on one level you know very very few of us understand it but we all take it for granted yeah yeah i think that that just that that gratitude for simple things like you say whether it be power or water whatever it is i lived in a camper van in australia for for 12 months and it was 20 odd years ago now and i was traveling for a couple of years and uh yeah i I probably don't think about it as much as i used to but i'm still pretty amazed uh that yeah you can just you know i've even got one of those hot water taps now so i can basically have a cup of tea whenever i want you know there's permanently boiled water available to come out and and (laughs) i sound like such a hippie but it blows my mind i'm like god this is amazing it's so convenient but i think it's so important that we're sort of consciously gratitude you know yeah show gratitude for it and uh and make a note i imagine you know as you said writing the book and and having all these memories and going on that journey was was you know it's a healing process but i imagine it was quite an enjoyable process very enjoyable yeah uh, i mean like i said it, it, going back to that um lothlorian time i was i was a yeah i was a bit a bit of a mess so it was there was a lot of enjoyment a lot of learning but there was also a lot of pain so it was kind of a mixed bag all of that to be honest with you yeah did it did it teach you anything? Because I, you know, there were quite often people there. I read, you know, making food for forty people from a caravan kitchen. That sort of natural looking after people and, and and hospitality, and I suppose the confidence to be, you know, to have to just walk into a room and engage with with strangers. Was it was it good for you that period and giving you that confidence? Yes, no, definitely. I, I I've I've carried that, and I know a lot of people who were there and the family who who were there have have, have carried that sense of self-confidence around food and around hospitality um and and also uh an element of jack of all trades you know you kind of get used to having to try your hand at all sorts of things um and and definitely acknowledging master of none but 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 you know there's a real enjoyment in that breadth of being able to touch into things and uh enjoy quite a diverse life as a result 
Yeah, I bet. Good. Okay. Well, eventually that that adventure finished. You uh, you moved back to to Bristol. You became the manager at uh, a city farm, Windmill Hill. Um, but then, yeah, 1984 comes along. So this is your sort of heading into entrepreneurial, self employed kind of thing, I guess, by the sounds of it. And you opened real food supplies that sounded really tough you know reading about you you driving around the country meeting I, I suspect all these amazing you know farmers and finding all this produce sounded incredible uh, but as is the case with so many entrepreneurs that business became very popular but ultimately failed what did you learn from that business that you knew you had to do differently when you restarted your sort of next business I think you know Thinking about that that period in my life, Mark, that one of the things about it was that I was so engrossed and so headstrong about what I wanted to do, so passionate that I, I it was kind of at the exclusion of everything else, and 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 you know I didn't really care about business. All I cared about was getting this food and putting it in the shop and that was the joy the joy of actually people wanting it and the business growing constantly as a result but with with no real eye on good business acumen to be honest with you it was, it was um, rather sad in some ways but um and i yeah i mean i've learned so much from that that period about you know what what not to do but it was it was a fascinating process that when it when it got to the point where interest rates were fifteen percent, um, and I just opened another store, and I just borrowed more money to do that. It didn't occur to me at the time. Oh gosh, this is fifteen percent. Uh, that's really going to be quite crippling. I just thought, yes, I can do this. Yes, I can do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. It was almost irresponsible when I reflect on it. But I wasn't aware of it, so it wasn't irresponsible. I was just very, very eager to to keep on uh, making things happen. Um, but it was that interest rates um, and the fact that uh, I was hiding uh, an un- a significant underperformance in the business margin-wise because I was growing. So cash was not too bad all the time. Um, and then the, the, everything came home to roost. Um, and I remember once <clears throat> realizing just how out of out of control I was when I went to the freezer to get something out of it, and in the bottom of the freezer I found a packet, and it was the takings from uh, a period over Christmas about two months before, <clears throat> which I hadn't even banked and hadn't realized were there, and was still kind of scratching my head as to why things were so bad, and that uh, it was yeah. like okay, you really you're really not running a cool business here. <laughs> I think so so many of us have been on that journey though Phil and I think you need to you know I, I always think if you if you had all the information at the start you know you would you it would put you off doing things and, and you need to go on that journey and learn and I look back to the chaotic days early in my business you know we were so close to going under on so many occasions but you think god yeah would I would, yeah I suppose the question is yeah would, would you change it now or do you think it was a necessary part of the evolution um I wouldn't change it. The only thing that I would I, I regret about it is, that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that I left a few people short of cash. You know, I went bust, and um, some of those were farmers. Um, yeah, and that and that was tough. 
Yeah, and I think there's a number that have been on that journey in the last 12 months with COVID, I think, isn't it? God, one of the hardest things I remember early in, you know, when we when we shut down was, a, was about 120 grand that I owed various suppliers. And I was like, look, we'll do our very best to trade out of this. And luckily we have. But God, yeah, the, the emotional pressure of all those people that you owe money to can uh, can be a lot. <clears throat> no, absolutely. I, I yeah. took to the drink a little bit at the end of that. And you'd undid all that good sort of journey you'd been on in yeah. your uh, in your Scottish yeah. adventures. Yeah. But you 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 clearly learned some stuff then because it wasn't long. You know how, how long was it before you know between shutting that down and yeah? How many? Sorry, two years. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty fast. So uh, yeah. And um, what so what was next? So well, I restarted with all the learnings and uh, what had happened to do something really simple, very straightforward, very uh, kind of tight in terms of controls um but again very small i started in my back kitchen doing home delivery again um and um that was born as phil's better food campaign so you can get the gist of it it was still very much about a um a campaign to change the food system um knowing that there was a lot of people out there not least of all my customers who kept on sort of saying, when are you going to do something again? We can't get off organic food anymore. Um, it was funny, actually. People were quite cross. You know, I mean, genuinely, they were quite cross when I closed the previous one. So they were quite pleased when I started doing something else. Um, and that Better Food campaign grew into uh, the Better Food Company, which then morphed into Better Food. And so it was a... It was a box scheme, um, which then added meat and dairy uh, and basic whole foods. And then after a couple of warehouses, we started opening up on a Saturday um, after we'd grown for about three, four years. Um, and we so we had a kind of Saturday shop, which people loved. And we'd um, it was a pack house but people were able to go around the pack house and pick, pick the items and bring them to the till at the end of the warehouse. And uh, there, was a, there was a kind of rustic joy about it. You know, it was absolutely no frills, um, but, but very much appreciated. And that became the foundation for going into retail. Yeah, and and this time presumably then you were focused on margin and you weren't leaving your takings in the freezer. Was that the key difference? Yeah, no, absolutely. It was it was a, a much better uh, managed company. Um, not not brilliant at times, but um, generally speaking, I mean, we we did still later in in life get to a point like when we moved from the warehouse to the new shop, uh, we didn't really have the money to to do it well so we were doing it on a wing and a prayer to a degree um yeah and it took quite a while to get through that yeah how all the best businesses start so you're quite unusual in the fact that i suppose i you know i've seen a a big growth in the food boxes you know or certainly consciously noticed it in the last few years but but you went through that you know trailblazing i guess and 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 doing it you know a long time ago but made the conscious decision to come out of that and actually to get into the the retail side which which now looks like the you know the opposite to what's what lots of people were doing what was the reason for the motivation for that and 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 have attempted to get back into the food box or i suppose you scratched that itch again with the with the community farm but yeah what's the retail for uh, the reason for sticking to the retail side of it the direct um well the first reason for sticking to retail was when about a year after we moved into the new shop 
it had been a tough ride financially to get there. And we decided to take a good hard look at the business and what was working and what wasn't. And the home delivery uh, was the bit that was least able to wipe its face. Um, you know, we were doing a 25-mile radius of Bristol and every single grocery item, you know, we had about 2,500 product lines. Um, and anybody who knows about um, home delivery knows that it's it's really tough. And so we decided to pull back from that and um, concentrate on retail. We then did actually start a box scheme a couple of years later, um, but again, trying to make sure that we didn't get tempted. Because part of what happens, you know, is is that um, you get asked by people all the time, oh, can you do this for us? And, can you? and so you kind of get tempted into growing outside of a box. So this time I said, right, okay, that is the box. You can't change what goes into the box. We've got five boxes for you to choose from. End of story. If you don't, if that doesn't work, then I'm sure there's other people who can who can serve you, and that was really quite successful. And that was what we then handed over to the community farm um, later, some years later. But yeah. also, what it what you know the fact that we were doing uh, at one point, I was running a, a, a restaurant cafe next to the walled gardens, and we were wholesaling and retailing and doing a box scheme. It was too complex, and I was burning out because I was doing everything from the front line and didn't really understand how to do any anything it do it otherwise um, at the time. And so it, it was definitely time to shed some elements of it. And we decided that you know let's set up the community farm, but also let's give them give them the box scheme and the wholesale. Um, and so we were able to focus pretty much on retail, and, and that made quite a difference to the structure of the business and to our focus um, and gave me the time and, and um, resources to to be able to really nail that. And then we started to grow. So we, we opened our second shop in White Ladies Road. Um, that was about 11 years ago now. Um, and, um, yeah, so... You've cracked on. I think. I think all too often, it's what you say no to is more important than what you say yes to, isn't it? And it is so tempting. And I've done exactly the same. You know, added more and more complexity to the business. And actually, the, the benefit coming off the back of COVID is going to have. You know, is, is the need to have simplified that business. But I also take my hat off to anybody who does home delivery because we, you know, not in our niche at all. But we decided with Valentine's and all my chefs, you know, being uh, off at the moment, we thought right, we'll bring them back from furlough. Let's get the team together and do a bit of a project. And we did a load of Valentine's boxes. And we decided, oh, we'll just deliver them ourselves we didn't really give that bit a lot of thought we just thought you know we'll make these amazing boxes and we only sold 108 but it was it was decent but my goodness we learned a lot on the day of delivery when we'd said pretty much to people i think we'd, we'd drop them off between sort of 12 and 5 and we hadn't really worked out how long it takes and then uh, i think the first uh, 18 boxes which is all the ones furthest state of, out of town took us three and a half hours and quite quickly we realized that, that we were going to be working very late and uh, we ended up bringing in three extra cars and we still didn't get all the food out until 10 o'clock that, e- that evening so anybody wow. who can do uh, box delivery on mass is uh yeah it's a pretty it's, it's much more complicated than people think it is i think isn't it yeah and I, I mean it's something that most of us don't realize but most home delivery including the supermarkets don't make money it's a very very labor intensive um crucifyingly difficult in margin um yeah 
So well, it's the same. It's the same in restaurants. You know, when people have said, "Oh, you know, why don't you do home delivery now that all your restaurants are shut?" And you're like, "Look, the, the, the economics don't work. If you, if I can open my restaurant, and over the course of the day, you know, at a busy seafront restaurant, maybe 300 people will come in. You know, and, and I might have, you know, 100 of those might be in the building at the same time. But if you ask me to to go out and yeah, and feed those hundred of people by taking the food to their house that evening and dropping it off their doorstep, it's just completely inefficient. It's so much more efficient yeah. if I can bring bring the yeah. customer yeah. to me. So um i just want to touch on so you sort of conscious of these sort of changing food trends and and it was really interesting to read so you know you you hang your hat very clearly on the mantra of ethics and sustainability and you do an incredible job of that but but you know it's always this case that if you stick your head above the parapet you know some people will try and shout you down so i I know the public at times have been very critical of your decision to continue selling uh meat for example and, and you've got a very open and comprehensive response on your website as to why that's the case so i just wanted to explore your thoughts a little bit on i suppose that you know that changing food trends the rise of plant-based and, and does meat consumption fit into our our sort of sustainable future of food what's your mm. thoughts and knowledge around that yeah no absolutely Mark. and I, I touch on this quite a bit in the book as well as you know i i, I think um first of all i think i come from a, a, a perspective of of you know, how I view all of this as one of generosity and respect. So I, I really do respect those people who say uh, n- no meat or just all meat is bad and I want to be vegan. And um, so I think that's a kind of starting point. Um, I think one of the things that has happened um, very significantly, particularly around red meat, is that we've been told for a long time not to eat red meat for various reasons. And we we have a real tendency to throw the the the, the baby out with the bathwater, and not to take a, a very holistic, broad view of how things are done. So we know that um, that uh, the the consumption of beef across the planet is is far far too high. We know that the way in which it is produced on on a an in, in, in an industrial way is absolutely abhorrent and not fit for human consumption, in my view. Um, and that it's damaging the rainforests and that it's bad for the climate. Um, All those things are absolutely true, and we really urgently need to do something about these things. Um, However, there is an alternative, which goes back to something we we touched on earlier a little bit, which was around uh, de-industrialising our food system and coming back to something that is... Uh, hum- a human scale um, and when you localize food and you start thinking about what in my environment uh, what what will my environment support by the way of food if you take England for instance it's a very green uh, well watered grass loving nation and if you went to uh, say right we're not going to eat any meat at all um we're actually then going to be plowing a lot more land for pulses and beans and uh vegetables and what have you well not the vegetable because we actually need more of those but the the grains and the pulses and stuff we're going to be plowing which is going to be releasing a vast amount of uh carbon from from that soil at a time where if we do it right and if we live within the uh, the framework of our environment, which is the green, pleasant land, which it has an immense ability to sequester carbon 
And part of looking after that and sequestering carbon is to have uh, small uh, volumes of livestock uh, ruminants um, w- within that. But so, so I'm all in favour of us continuing to champion really, really good quality meat. And with the suggestion, and no more than that, that we actually really consider how much of even of that really, really good meat that we eat. So the idea of having meat every day or even necessarily meat every week is, is, is it's not necessary anymore. We need a holistic view. We don't need, I think I, my invitation is that we explore a more holistic view, of everything to do with food and farming and nutrition um, and climate. Um, and I feel that uh, most meat comes into that. I think, in in a way, I feel our biggest challenge is around poultry and uh, pigs because we have legislation which disallows us to uh, to uh, recycle food for pigs, which is what used to happen only a few generations ago, um, which is utilising food waste and turning it into good nutritious meat. And with poultry, we've hybridized them, as we were talking earlier about the chicken and the egg, to the extent where it's a, it's a very um, energy and protein intense piece of meat uh, that, that really, again, doesn't serve us very well when we could actually be getting an awful lot more of that from grass and uh, after crops and stuff, you know, foraging for, 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 the, for the waste of crops. Um, so there is a different way, a more holistic way of approaching all this. It may seem a little bit idealistic, but I believe that if we dismantle the, in, the industrial side, the more we do that, the more we'll encourage human scale farming and food systems, which, uh, which I, I believe are our best way, best bet of, of an approach for, for the future. Yeah, that's great. I, I, I often feel for the consumer because... You know, I, I have conversations with people every week, and it's not always on the uh, on the environment env- environmental side of, of what we eat and what we drink, but it often comes up. And and even doing all of that research, you know, it's it's really complicated sometimes to know, you know, yeah, what what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat. The omnivore's dilemma, I guess, as the as the famous book goes. Um, one of the key reasons for that. So so we then end up going, okay, well, let, you know, let's use these accreditations. So whether that be organic or whether that be MSC, you know, we look we look at those because it should simplify our decision making but i remember again chatting to guy watson and i I think he was explaining to me you know some of the some of the things that can be done this sort of industrial scale organic i suppose and i think the example he gave me was in france where they were they were injecting steam into the soil to bring the temperature up to a level where it would kill the bacteria because they weren't allowed to use chemicals however they were using you know so much fuel in in the process of creating all this steam and and it, it just feels like it goes against the principles of the accreditation how, how does the consumer trust i think msc was another one when i looked into it and again i've not done this for some time so this might be out of date but you know at the time i was looking at it too in the restaurant we were looking at salmon and it was caught off the alaskan coast frozen at sea sent to china for packaging and then distributed around the world with the complexity as to what can go on yeah what, what's your thoughts on how we make sure that this accreditation remains meaningful i mean i, I think first of all the the, the going back to the localizing our food system and connecting with our producers wherever possible makes a massive difference over and above that we need the layers of accreditation and uh it's 
what really all we can do, I guess, in a way, really, is look look behind the label and the motivations for having that certification. So, it's is is the certification corrupted? <clears throat> and uh, sadly, we know that in in some cases in America, some of the standards of organic are allowing things that that the soil association certainly wouldn't allow. Um, and uh, I do think that the soil association standards are. You know, of course they're flawed. I mean, there isn't standards which aren't flawed, um, but they are, uh, they've got great integrity um, and they've got uh, probably the best stab at um, good organic standards that are available around the world. But yeah, so I, I think accreditation is important and I think we always need to challenge that accreditation to do better. Um, but ultimately, I think the most important thing is going back to that human scale and connecting with where your food comes from, wherever it's possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree 100%. And, and the closer we can make the connection, and, you know, it's been great in the restaurant when I've been able to bring some of our suppliers in, um, you know, to meet the consumers, which is, you know, it's, it's a really uh, a privilege, I suppose, to be able to do that. Um, it feels hard in the restaurant world. So, you know, as you said, your your cafes maybe break even, but not not just from a financial motivation to, to buy organic in the restaurant, actually just from a supply sort of perspective. I chat to a lot of my uh, fresh produce providers, and, and this just seems to be a very limited amount, if any, organic produce available at a commercial level at the sort of scale we're talking about. Am I, am I misinformed to that, or is there a challenge around how to get organic food from the fields you know to the restaurants what, what scale are you talking about you is, is this just a few restaurants i'm not yeah, i'm not weather yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah i've only got i've only got three there is there is no doubt that um anybody who chooses to uh get a lot of organic certified organic produce and get a lot of certified organic produce and they will be challenged on margin um, which is why there isn't thousands of organic restaurants around the country, uh, which is which is sad because I think um, we, we we could really do with having uh, more focus in in the hospitality trade on the provenance of food and it, it's um, how sustainable it is because you know there is an awful lot around sustainable restaurants etc. And yet it doesn't actually focus very much on its impact on soil um, and um, all the other benefits of organic certification. Um, but there's no doubt about it that there is a there is a global supply chain of really good organic foods. And there is no reason why uh, we can't expand that exponentially. Okay. And, and and any particular you know are you aware of any that specialize because i guess we you know we always try and buy local so we are using the sort of you know the local suppliers um so maybe it's it but are there national you know sort of commercial organic providers that you know of uh well there's lots of uh distributors of dry foods that specialize in organic um some of them are cooperatives um i mean they have a lot of non-organic as well but they have a massive range of organic you know, grains and pulses and tins and uh, oils and cheese and you name it. Um, and then when it comes down to fresh produce, uh, the more local you can get, the better. But there are also um, regional. I don't know much about the, you know, the national network of organic fruit and veg, but certainly there are a lot of uh, really good London wholesalers who uh, distribute to, 
Well, actually, as it happens, they did. They, they have a fairly strong trade in catering in London, so they, there are some people doing it, for sure. Um, mm. You know, these companies are okay. taking over billions between. Yep. Them, so uh, it's it's a pretty 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 well oiled ship. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I need to look harder. I might follow that up with you uh, separately if you've if you've got any contacts. We are um, we're very almost out of time, Phil. So I just want to touch on the future because it's great. You know, I, I love the the journey you've been on. Like I say, I think that the journey really illustrates the depth of knowledge that you've got on this from those early days of you know running around the country yourself and meeting people to this you know, excellent business that you've now built. Um, if I just look again on a, on a local level, I suppose, you know, if I want to go to a, a U, you know, there's not a U in my hometown of Bournemouth. I'm not even sure that there's anybody doing anything, you know, close to, to what you're doing. What's the future plan? Do you see, I suppose, is it is it a you is it a better food in in you know spread a lot more across the country or do you think there's going to be a growth of other people in this field and why is it why is it that every town you know in the country doesn't have a an, an organic kind of whole food shop already um uh, well it's called um supermarket monopolies um and certainly whenever independents um grow to a point where they're doing something really interesting and there's a lot of uptake and demand for it the supermarkets then say oh look at what they've done let's let's do that um and we've seen evidence of that over generations um so that's a kind of anti-supermarket plug to a degree but you know let's also be generous what i think what i would like to see uh better food are definitely expanding the number of stores we have a rollout plan that over over the next five or ten years we hope to have at least another store a year um and so we will be branching out into other places but i hope that part of what that will do inspire it will inspire others to do similar things Um, and they already are you know there are there are a number of people i know who are expanding at the moment in brighton and london um and so the offering is growing um, but I hope that ultimately what happens, and I think this will happen sooner than we think, is that the supermarkets will be having conversations about the sustainability of the food system that they are so entrenched in. And if they're not careful, as Mark Carney said, they're going to find themselves on the wrong side of the fence. So I'd be amazed if they're not already having boardroom conversations around this. And I really hope that, that our our influence that they come to us to a degree to learn and to do something radically different. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I suppose it's a bit like the oil and gas industry, isn't it? You kind of think, look, if you if you burn all the oil and gas, then you're not going to have a business. And it's the same with the supermarkets. If you destroy all of the farms, then you're, you're not going to have a business. And, and there feels like a certain uncomfortable irony that now the big oil and gas players are the ones investing in green energy. But you're right, actually, you know, sometimes you've just got to think of the solution, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Well, good luck. That's uh, yeah. If you can roll out another another ten or so in the next ten years, please. Um, if you wouldn't mind doing me a favour, because I'm I'm really busy and, and much as I would like to build one, I, I don't want to have to do it. So if you could put one in Bournemouth for me, uh, that would be very much appreciated. I'll do some market research for you. Can you do something for me and find a good site, a really really choice site, and we'll we'll come down and put one in your town. Well, there you go. That sounds like a challenge. Okay, we'll we'll pair up. Um, for people that want to uh, a, I suppose you know, buy the book and b, follow your adventures. Uh, where's the best place for people to head to uh, to see what's going on in your um, world, Phil? Well, to follow <clears throat> to follow the adventures, um, go to the Better Food website, um, and you can uh, order the book through the website through a, an outfit for called Good Sixty, or you can get it in your local bookshop. 
Um, if they haven't got it in already, which they may have once they're allowed to open again, um, you can ask them to do that. And that would be a favor to me as well. So it's always nice to support your local bookshop. Um, otherwise, you can go to the big boys um, online. There's plenty of them. You know who they are. And, um, uh, they've all got the book. And we'll be delighted to sell it to you, I'm sure. Mm. Perfect. Okay. No more, uh, no more big plugs for them. And, uh, I will put a link up in the, um, in the show notes to sort of, you know, your, your various social media channels and stuff like that. So people can find it easily, but, um, just, you know, thanks for two things really one for sparing the time to chat today, but much more than that, I think is just, you know, you've been banging this, this drum about the, uh, the problems we're creating for the planet and our soil and where food comes from for multiple decades. So yeah, just a, a thanks for doing it and, uh, and bringing it to our attention and I hope you continue to do so, but yeah, really enjoyed chat to you oh thank you mark i appreciate your your gratitude on that that's good perfect all right thanks will all right cheers thanks so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed this week's episode at the moment i'm only releasing shows every other week rather than weekly due to needing to focus some time and energy in getting my restaurants and hotel back open but i will be back in two weeks time Links to Phil's book and social media can be found on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk where you can also sign up to the newsletter so you know when a new show has been released with easy access to any links discussed in that episode. Okay, have a great couple of weeks. Best of luck if you are opening the doors to your business or simply go out and enjoy a pint on a terrace somewhere and I'll be back soon. Cheers.